so if I if I'm having trouble being wordy, okay, for three days a week, I'm gonna right. any when I answer somebody, it's gonna be two sentences or less. Um, okay. I think I think the title spirit. You're right. Everything is spiritual. Um, there is no sacred secular dichotomy. I I think all that's meant by spiritual disciplines is an economy of speech to speak to certain disciplines that that directly relate to our spiritual state. We know communion with God, prayer, worship, and reading of God's word are some of the most immediate and effective ways of affecting our hearts and our spirits. Um, that's, it's, it's purely an economy of speech. You know, that, um, everything is a spiritual discipline. Driving to the glory of God is a spiritual discipline. Watching TV to the glory of God is a spiritual discipline. Enjoying your meal. Amen. But for an economy of speech, I think it's just a way of grabbing a, a lunchbox of certain yeah. things. And there tend to be disciplines that unless you're intentional with, you don't just roll into, you know. So, but point, point taken, sir. Point taken. What else? Dave? For the mic, 12 people want to know what you're saying, Dave. Thank you. Yeah. Flavel or flavel, depending on how you pronounce it. So what's the question? What's that? Uh, say that. I'm sorry. You want the name of the Puritan? It's yeah, that John Flavel or Flavel. If you use Audible, there, there's a version. It's not a very big book. Um, it's, uh, it's called Keeping the Heart. And it's all about tending, shepherding. So, so it's classic Puritan exposition. He takes like half a verse in Proverbs. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of water. Is that like Proverbs 4.10? Someone looked that up for me. Make, give me the right reference. I quoted it right, but I don't know the reference. And he does the classic Puritan thing. From this, we get the duty of guarding one's heart. And then the rest of the book is, how does one do this? And it's basically truths to meditate on, things to think. It, like it's chapter by like guarding your heart through seasons of prosperity, from those particular temptations. Guarding your heart through seasons of dryness. Guarding your heart through affliction. I mean, it's the whole book. It's just here is how to guard your heart through the various seasons of life. Because I can't directly affect my heart, but like a garden, I can water it. I can weed it. I can. I can cultivate my heart or shepherd my heart um, and I can certainly ask the Lord to do it you know, Flavel, Flavel or Flavel's book is phenomenous, phenomenally helpful and, and good I highly recommend it to anyone um, just really practical good medicine good stuff 423. 423 thank you sir I got the right chapter the author of Hebrews it's written somewhere so you know it is written somewhere um, so no, j j and like I said, if you're on Audible, you can. It's on Audible. You can get it. Um, which, if you struggle with Puritans, you may find Audible easier because a lot. If if you've got a good reader, like take I I love Pilgrim's Progress, but reading Pilgrim's Progress with John Bunyan's prose can be challenging. Simon Vance reading Pilgrim's Progress is just delightful. He. If someone knows how to read that English well, it's a lot easier to understand. Just like hearing Shakespeare read is easier than reading it yourself. So you may find Audible um, a helpful tool. Can you with that. get the Audible, Audible on, the, on the internet? Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. 
Okay. Audible, there's an app on your phone. That was a dumb question, but I, 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 yeah. I, I had to ask it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. And it, yeah, you can get it's an app on your phone. I'll, yeah, meet up with me. I'll, I'll set you up. I'll hook, I'll hook you up. Oh, and I, that that song you guys sang, boy, I tell you, you guys, your voices blend Aww, perfectly. Thank you. I cannot believe thank you. that that other guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. There you go. That's right. I, if you like the song, Sons of Cora is an Australian music group. All they do is put the psalms to music, and I, I can't speak highly enough about them. As a musician, I find their music to be non-generic and fresh in that sense and so much christian music i can't deal with because the lyrics are just bleh. they're putting scripture to music what's the mere these are the best the words are always 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 good yeah the words are always 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 good and i like the fact that they'll do whole psalms and not just the nice portion in the middle but they'll do the, the whole what sold me was their version their treatment of psalm 40 which is an ups and downs psalm and i listened to it and the celebratory part sounds celebratory and the low parts they bring in like a minor fourth and a perfect fifth harmony wise and it's like, man, you, you, normally when people take songs, they'll take a happy part to make a happy song. They'll take a sad part to make a sad song. But the psalm has got the happy part and the sad part, and they put them both together. It's like Psalm 95, right? Psalm 95, come, let us worship the Lord or the sheep of his... But then it's like, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in Meribah, as in the day of testing in the wilderness. For I declared they shall never enter my rest. It does not end on a happy note. And they nail it. Anyway. Sons of Korah, and there are others that do that, but I, I, I love Sons of Korah. They're on, um, you can watch YouTube videos, they're on the App Store, they're on Apple Music, whatever, however you want to, however you get your music, Sons of Korah is great. Okay. Now we got the book plugs, the music plugs, other questions and thoughts. Yo, Jim. Um, I noticed it wasn't a uh, sports analogy. You used a catalytic converter. <laughs> oh, so no, 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 no. Let me explain. Let was me explain it like the analogy. a catalyst? A catalyst so a catalyst takes what's going to happen naturally and speeds it up, right? That's what a catalyst does. So the teachers that Christ gave the church are not doing a work that you couldn't do on your own. What I'm doing in my study and in my teaching is not anything you couldn't replicate or do. Unlike, say, Rome, where they've got the magisterial teaching offices. So in Roman Catholic ecclesiology, their understanding of the church, only those who are authorized to interpret should interpret. The normal laity would get confused, would end up with all sorts of interpretations. So leave it to the professionals, right? Um, so what I'm doing is not that. What I'm doing, I can potentially, a teacher in the church can expedite, can speed, can be a catalytic converter in that sense. It's what commentaries do for me. They'll make connections that I could have made given enough time. But they just made the connection for me, and it sped things up. It facilitated it. But th that's what I mean by a catalytic converter. In the same way that a catalyst can speed up a reaction, that's... that's oh, Sorry, that is an odd... In my head, it makes sense. But, but that's the point I'm trying to get at. There's nothing I'm doing you couldn't do. There, there's nothing that I'm doing in my study and my teaching that is, is in a separate category from any of your study and your work. It's one of the reasons why I think um, this Q&A is important, because it's holding me accountable. And anyone who disagrees, push back. Like, you should not care what I think unless I can back up why I think it from, the, from Scripture. Um, I'm not a, a, a mini pope. Um, and the elders tell me that regularly. That's very good. Um, okay. How you doing, Rick? 
Thanks. Okay. Other questions or thoughts? Liz. Yeah, I I think okay. Let me go go to Second Corinthians. Um, let's turn to Second Corinthians. True joy and contentment does not mean no suffering. It means um, having something that's satisfying, something that makes you content in suffering. That that would be my test of of true joy or contentment. Something that can't be shaken. So Paul, who suffers like nobody's business. I think Second Corinthians four is where we want. Let me get. There gives, and I I think I referenced this in some degree in the message itself. Um, okay, um, yeah, okay. Verse seven, chapter four, verse seven. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe, so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord from the dead will also with Jesus bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, the eternal things are unseen, but the but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is is saying he's got a glorious thing in his eyes that's exciting him, and he's got a lot of suffering. I think the the, the test of joy would be in your sorrow and suffering, are you able to rejoice in what you have that can't be taken from you? So if you can still rejoice in the God of your salvation, if you can rejoice in your Savior, if you can rejoice in the hope of glory, even as you got the cancer diagnosis, you lost your job, your home's getting for mortgage, you know, getting taken, whatever, then I think you've got something true and sure. If if your ability to you, that that's an indication that you've got deep joy and satisfaction. If life can throw its worst blows at you, and even while it stinks and it hurts and it's awful, you are, can sincerely and genuinely be thankful and rejoice in something, you've, you've got a foundation. You've got something solid. If, on the other hand, those temporal sufferings that are real make it unable to, to rejoice, um, then... You, 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 that's an indication you don't have something stable. Piper uses the analogy of a keel or ballast for a ship. A ship without a keel, the wind, if you put a mast up, it just get knocked over. But it's that weight at the bottom and that ballast in the keel that keeps it solid so that in a storm it stays upright. And, and I think having 
true joy and satisfaction in God is precisely that ballast. Don wants to add. Oh, no. Microphone. Amen. Let me show you another remark. Oh, Liz wants to get going. But then I, I got a, on deck an example of something. Is, just guys, leave the mic on. Just leave that microphone on. It's okay. Um, so I, so my sister, she's the one I'm thinking about right now. She's suffered some pretty great loss recently. She had to deliver stillborn oh. um, about uh, back in May and then found out she was pregnant a couple months ago and has since miscarried. Oh. And so there's been quite a bit of pain and suffering there and I'm supposed to have lunch with her tomorrow and I I want to speak truth to her in a way that is encouraging and loving and not downplaying the suffering at all but mm. also to encourage her in this joy and so what could I kind of encourage her with and because that that, actually le that leads so perfectly into what I was actually going to suggest. Okay. Let's go to Second Samuel 12. Um, here's another example of extreme suffering. And I think the important thing to say to your sister is you don't want to minimize the extremity of her suffering. I, I don't... There's two ways we can talk about a satisfying joy. We can make the joy bigger or the suffering smaller. And I think the Bible is very realistic that some of the suffering is immense. I mean, Job, covered in sores, head to toe, his whole family dead, um, book of Lamentations. So in, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes and rebukes David for murdering um, Uriah and stealing his wife. And at the end of this, um, David confesses in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless... Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child. I mean, you can imagine David's anguish. The child's going to die, and it's your fault he's going to die, David. This is judgment in your sin. I mean, good night. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground and he would not nor did he eat food with him on the seventh day the child died so for seven days David's not eating he's prostrate on the ground interceding with God pleading with God to save the life of this child and the baby was sick throughout this yeah And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do harm to himself. 
But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He, there is no doubt he is in deep, long-term anguish, sorrow, praying, intercession, beseeching. It's his fault, and God doesn't listen to his intercession. The child dies. And he's able to worship God. That, that's where you want to be able to find. Can you do both? Can you, can you plead and grieve and lament like David is? And can you worship God? I think that's the picture of stability. It's, it's, it's David. It's not that David's joy in the Lord makes him not worry about his. It's no big thing, this child. That, no, David is broken over this. For seven days, he's not sleeping or eating, he's just pleading for this child. And when his prayers go unanswered, he's able to still worship God. I mean, I don't know if your sister will find that helpful at all, but to me, that's a powerful picture of like, okay, they can coincide the worship of God and strong pleadings and prayers and grief. Um, James 1-2. James 1-2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. I'm only, I'm only thinking that if someone's broken, telling them, rejoice. It may not be the most immediate medicine. You're absolutely, I mean, it's true. It is true. There is joy to be found in the trial. Um, absolutely. Oh, no. Go. In my own life, um, at times, comfort, and because I know when I'm in those hard times, what does it do? I draw yeah. to God. Yeah. And that, that, that brings the joy. Mm. Yes, well, the fact, the fact that this suffering, again, some of these things are truths that it's more helpful to get in place beforehand. It's, it's tough when someone's in the storm to give them a deep theology of the sovereignty of God and suffering. But one of the things that I take tremendous heart in, like take my friend losing both his parents. Um, because I believe God's in control of all things, the death of my friend's parents has a purpose I don't know what the purpose is, but it's not meaningless. It's not just, well, sometimes stuff happens. It's part of a wise plan that good will come through. And so you can begin through faith to hope, God, would you show me some of the good you mean to do through this? I'd really love to see some good in this ugliness. And it's not to say the ugliness isn't ugliness. It is. And God will do good through it. So looking for, asking the Lord to show you what good you intend to do through this. One other, one other passage I find tremendously helpful back in 2 Corinthians um, is, is this. 2 Corinthians 1, um, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, not some, all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God will comfort you in all your affliction to equip you to pass that comfort on to others. 
Um, for we, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we're comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So God is called a God of all comfort. And I'd, I'd turn her to this God of all comfort and say, this is what I told my, again, I told my friend, like, God makes this bold declaration of himself, call him to be faithful to it. Just like the psalmist did today. Lord, according to your word, comfort me. This word right here, where you say you comfort the afflicted, comfort me. You know, keep, keep your word, I mean, in an appropriate, respectful way, but call on the Lord, be faithful to his word. Hear his words, all affliction, all, you know, it's like God offers comfort, call on him for it. You know, um, that's, I, this is another one of my favorite passages. So the, the, that my, my short answer, medium answer in a Navy F list. But I'll be praying. Choose, when are you going out to lunch? Oh, okay. Tomorrow. I'll, I'll be praying for that. I'm praying for that. Okay. Other, other thoughts, questions, Jim. Oh, Don, then Jim. Just as you said, uh, Christ didn't die so that we wouldn't have to suffer, but so that our suffering would have meaning and value. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what we see in the scripture is usually it's through suffering that God accomplishes his most powerful works. You know, I mean, um, t- turn to second, first Peter two, and then we'll go to Jim. First Peter two. Um, it's the logic here. Um, in the context of submitting to authorities, um, Peter anticipates, what if, I'm in t- what if I'm suffering under a wicked authority? What if my slave master beats me for doing good? What then? Um, I'll, I'll show you the, 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 log- the movement, and then I'll try to get to the point that ties in with this. So the, the section starts in 2.13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Case in point number one. Slaves, servants is a weak translation. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, to tyrants. For this, now here's the point. Why is that? Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Notice how in verse 19, one, anyone, we're broadening. It's not, this is a gracious thing when slaves suffer unjustly. Whenever, for the sake of conscience, God's people suffer unjustly and they do it patiently, it's a gracious thing in God's sight. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Then he broadens it out even further in verse 21. For to this you've been called. What is the antecedent of this? Unjust suffering. Patiently endured. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the principle, all of us have been called to patiently endure suffering unjustly. We're to follow the example of our Lord Jesus, who didn't fight back, who didn't curse those cursing him. And then he points to what God accomplished through Jesus' unjust suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, the greatest act of salvation that God accomplished was done through the willing suffering unjustly of his son. And then you read church history and you find out the gospel spread largely is through suffering. What causes the early church to leave Jerusalem and go out and fulfill the Great Commission? Stephen's martyrdom. So by and large, God usually does his biggest saving works through the suffering of his servants, not their success. You know, um, and, if, and it makes sense to a certain degree. When somebody driving a limousine or a Rolls Royce is like, praise God. It's not as impressive as when somebody loses their child and worships God. Which one shows a God who's valuable? Wow, what is holding that person up? You know what I mean? Jeb Brewer persevering through his cancer with joy and fidelity. What, how great must his God be? Far more impressive advertisement than watching somebody after scoring a touchdown point up, you know, yep. that's generally the way things work, generally. I mean, there are exceptions. There's the Abraham, the odd Abraham, and, you know, Solomon who's rich. But by and large, it seems as though God prefers to work through the weakness of his people, not their strength. Um, because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. God's power is seen more clearly through weak, broken, stuttering servants than through powerful, strong, debonair servants, generally speaking. So, Jim. We know, we know by reading that the God of the Bible is sovereign. And we also know, as we sang earlier this morning, that he delights in his children. Yeah. We know that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Liz, you had me thinking about these things. Um, what's a struggle for me, and I'm sure others, is that sometimes we just don't see his purposes in it. Sure. And a couple of verses that I go to when I'm struggling with that is mm. Isaiah 55. Uh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's come to me that, you know, the first three rules of real estate are location, location, location. The first three r rules for me as a believer even especially when I don't mm. understand, is trust him, trust him, trust him. God is good, and sometimes I don't understand why yeah. I don't see one of my children come to faith, or I see rebellion in them, or I see someone suffer, or, you know, or someone being treated unjustly, but ultimately, he is trustworthy. And in regards to the message this morning, it's like, where else do we, where else can we go, Lord? Where else what can else we go? What else do we have to cling to? Right. No, no amen. Amen. Um, 
Yeah, turn to John 11. Let me show you an example. Um, I find, because your point's well taken, we can't have any confidence that we will know this side of eternity what God is up to in suffering. So I take great comfort in those few times when I can see it. It, it, it's kind of like if God says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. It makes it easier to trust him when I see all those other times he knew what he was doing. <laughs> and so John 11 is an is a extreme case of this, right? But you got to notice the grammar um, here. It's, it's crucial. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of, Beth, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And there's an implied request, right? Since you love him, obviously you're going to drop what you're doing and come heal him. Like you healed so many others. No brainer. Slam dunk. I mean, you read in Luke's gospel, they bring in all his sick to them and he was healing them. He went around healing but Jesus, when he heard it, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now look at verse 5. Here's the grammar is critical. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then my translation rightly translates un in Greek. So, therefore, causality. I think the NIV just puts a period, and it's not helpful. Absolutely, the Greek here is emphatic. Because Jesus loved, that's, this is the point here. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, therefore, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed for two days longer in the place where he was. And I think you're meant to go, what? I don't think it's helpful when the translations smooth out the dichotomy. It's like, wait, what? And so... You know, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter. Um, and, and of course, both sisters wrestle with the same implied question, right? Um, they, they come and they say, Lord, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. So verse 21, Martha said, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, right? But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into this world. Then Jesus goes to the tomb and he weeps. So even though Jesus intentionally delayed, with the purpose that Lazarus would die, he's sovereign over this, he, he, could, he, he delayed. It's all on him. That doesn't mean he doesn't deeply care for the suffering that happened. So there's a, there's a lot of things coming together. You may be tempted to think, of oh, God's in control. He's a callous, heartless. No, Jesus is weeping at the tomb. And he did this because he loved them. And he did this that the glory of God might be revealed. And the short answer version of this. I mean, John Piper, um, more than anyone, bring, connects these dots. This is just me parroting off some of his stuff, but the, the logic works this. Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus knows that the glory of God and what they will see about the glory of God in going through the suffering, coming out the other side, Lazarus being resurrected, being 
put into scripture and the record is going to be a greater gift and a greater joy for them than if he just simply showed up and got Lazarus better. That, you know, say from this vantage point, 2,000 years later, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are glad that Jesus loved them and let Lazarus die and let things unfold the way unfolded so they could see his glory, so they could take part in the salvation story. And from that vantage point, you can see how it's an act of love. I love them, therefore, I'm going to let this happen because of all the good and the glory that's going to come out of it. But we know that. Clearly, Mary and Martha didn't until Jesus showed them what he was going to do. Those two days that he waits, they're, they're tough days. And those are the days of just, will you trust God that he knows what he's doing? So I, I look at things like this, and it reminds me God isn't heartless, even as he determines with your sister. He could have saved the child. There's no, there's no use pretending he couldn't have. And yet, I have to believe his heart weeps, like Jesus weeping at this tomb, over that. I mean, we're tempted to think, well, if he could have and he didn't, then he's heartless. No, no. He, the same Jesus who weeps in front of Lazarus' tomb is weeping for the helpless and the powerless who die. Um, and also he is going to produce the glory of God from this good will come. So John 11 to me brings together God's emotional love, God's control. And that sometimes what's best for us isn't what we want or what we immediately think is best. Sometimes what's best for us is going through two really hard days or Lazarus is in a tomb because when Jesus shows up and finishes his plan, we'll see it and go, okay. So, so, I have to be confident that in glory, when I see what God is up to, I will praise him and not offer corrections. I mean, it seems unthinkable that when we get to glory and we find out all that God is up to, we say, hey, that was a good plan. It would have been a little better, however, if you had saved my child. It would have been a little better if the cancer hadn't come. It would have been a little better if I had some more years with my wife, whatever, whatever that might be, we will not be saying that. We will not be saying that. We don't need to understand it this side. We, it, it, the challenge isn't, I need to know what you're doing. We just have to trust that he knows what he's doing. And the Bible gives us example after example after example after example where God is faithful. We can trust him. You know, you think of Joseph. The Lord loves me and he let my brother sell me into slavery. And then, I'm trying to be faithful, I get accused of attempted rape. Then I'm thrown in jail. And yet Joseph, at the end of his life, not even the end of his life, when his brothers come to him, you meant evil against me. Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Joseph is already able to say, getting sold into slavery, getting falsely accused, getting thrown into prison, was God meaning good for me? Because it got me in position here to save millions of people through this famine. So I look at stories like that and like, okay, I can trust God. I can trust God. I can trust God. That'd be the other piece, Liz. You don't need to understand why. Can you trust him that he's good and he knows what he's doing? Um, th that, that would be my encouragement to your friend. Lee. And then Don. And Tell us something we don't know, Lee. <laughs> getting getting her back for you, Dave. There you go. That's for teasing, Dave. I, I often like like this one phrase that Paul used: the fellowship 
Amen. Amen. Don. And all those unanswered prayers and the sufferings of us crying out. Let me read Revelation 8. The Lamb opened up the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God in the hand of the angel. And when God is eventually going to pour out his wrath on the earth, the prayers in Revelation at this point are prayers of suffering, crying out for vengeance, vindication. Then the angel took the censer, which is filled with the prayers of the saints, and threw it on the earth. Even our prayers crying out, I mean, and the picture is people who've been killed. The prayers of saints in Afghanistan who are going to be martyred. God's storing them up. They're not getting, they're not getting lost. And when he ultimately pours out his wrath on the earth, it's in part fueled by those prayers. And you think of all the other types of prayers as well. I mean, not all our prayers are vindicate me and punish my enemies. But here, um, he, he cares for his children. He cares for his people. Um, let me let me read one other. Turn with me to Lamentations three. I think I'll close here. Um, Lamentations three is a remarkable, remarkable chapter of the Bible. It is like um, a deep, deep trench with steep slopes on either side. Um, the first half of Lamentations chapter 3 is some of the bleakest, harshest, ugliest 
language and pictures of God I'm aware of in the Bible. And then pivoting on two verses, it's some of the greatest praise. Um, I just want to read chapter 3. Let's do this. Jeremiah is watching the ancestral city of David sacked and burning and the nobility taken off and the temple gold instruments taken off. He's watching it all. He's watched it all. And and keep in mind, both halves of Lamentations 3 are scripture. (laughs) I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his right. This is part of what I'm saying is like the Bible doesn't minimize suffering. This is some of the strongest, ugliest language of suffering I'm aware of. And it's inspired. He has driven me about in darkness without any light. Surely against me he has turned his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set as a target for, set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. That is some bleak stuff. And I think most of you all know verses 22 and 23. The the remarkable amazingness of 22 and 23 to me is in its contrast. How can you mere two verses after saying what I just read get to here? And I think the key is verse 21. Remember my afflictions and my wandering, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind therefore I have hope what is it you call to mind I think it's what he's about to say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the Lord is my portion says my soul therefore I will hope in him the Lord is good to those who wait for him what you're going to start to see is going to reinterpret some of his things he's just past said. Before God shut his prayers out and walled him in, now he's saying, actually, it's good for me to pray and wait. It's good for those who wait for him, for the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a, young, for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheeks to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. We're covering the stuff he said earlier. I'm the taunt of all the people. He's, he's reinterpreting his past complaint. 
For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, that hasn't changed. God's in control in the first half and in the second. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart, which means I think he's not a sadist. Takes no pleasure or delight in suffering. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush understood foot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord had commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. I mean, it's a remarkable passage of just down, 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 despairing, and then up, up, up. And the pivot is verse 21, remembering who God is and what he's done. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so God has given people in suffering powerfully strong images to express their grief. Again, the challenge, Liz, for anyone suffering is... What I've said to people, feel free to pray the first half of this as long as you don't also pray the second half. <laughs> no, I mean, you need, you say, say it. This is awful and I hate it. And God is good and knows what he's doing. And you're good, man. You're good. Just, just, you can pray the first half of Lamentations 3 if you can also pray the second half. And you can be good. We'll call that a day. Thank you. Bye-bye.